Well, I wonder, how many times do you think you've read or heard a command from God? All the sermons, all the Bible verses, all the songs, all the conversations, all the Bible studies. It's a big number for some of you. For some of you, you've heard a lot of commands. You've read a lot of commands. Now consider this. How many times do you think you've disobeyed those commands? You've directly disobeyed those commands. How many times you've obeyed those commands, but not with a pure heart? <laughs> there are mixed motives. You didn't obey with the amount of love that you know that God deserves. You didn't obey with the amount of faith that you should have given. How many times? It's a big number for me. Maybe you can relate. What if we took all of our individual tallies, all of our individual sins, and we added them together? We added each of our individual list of sins into one big number. They don't teach us to count that high where I come from in East Tennessee. But that's a big number. It's a lot of disobedience for one room. And before a holy God, whose wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men, the Lord should mark iniquities in this room. Who could stand? Not First Boynton. Not you. And definitely not me. But friends, friends, with the Lord there is forgiveness. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. At just the slightest turn from us, just the slightest sign of repentance. Our God is quick to relent and to gather us again this morning and to share his word with us again, just like he did with his unfaithful prophet, Jonah. If you have your Bibles, you can find your way over to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. We're picking up in the middle of the book of Jonah, and as we've seen, Jonah has issues, right? Jonah has some problems. In chapter 1, God tells him what? To go to Nineveh. And what does Jonah do? He runs the opposite direction. Jumping on a boat, moving away from the presence of the Lord, he makes a beeline for Tarshish. Just like us, Jonah has some serious problems but what does God do? He tracks him down, doesn't he? If you read back over the first two chapters, God actually goes to great lengths to track Jonah down. 
orchestrating a storm near Jonah's boat, (laughs) sending a big fish to swallow up Jonah after he jumps off the boat, and miraculously sustaining Jonah for three days and three nights in the belly of the fish before spitting Jonah out on dry land. This is a lot of divine attention for an unfaithful prophet, don't you think? Why not just let Jonah go to Tarshish and figure himself out? Why not trade him in for a new, more faithful prophet with less miles and better gas mileage? Because God is quick to relent, saints. He's quick to relent. In chapter 3, verse 1, he wants to give Jonah another chance. Let's read Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I think the main idea of the text this morning and of the sermon is this. It's really simple. If you repent, God will relent. If, in God's sovereign, unchanging, gracious plan to save you, he gives you a heart to turn from your sin and turn to the Savior, then he will not punish you for your sins because your punishment will have already been paid for on the cross by Jesus. If you repent, God will relent. We'll take that main idea and just break it down into three points following the story of chapter three. Point number one, Jonah repents. Well, if the first two verses of chapter three felt like deja vu, you're not going crazy. It's almost the same language we heard back in chapter one. I'll just read that for you if you've forgotten. But chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 says, 
Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now again, ver verses 1 through 2 of chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. It's almost identical language, isn't it? Well, it's not accidental. It's, uh, that's, there's a purpose behind that. It's intentional. We're meant to notice the comparisons between chapter 1 and chapter 3. And we even are expected for the comparisons to continue. That's the expectation, is that the comparisons will just continue in verse 3. Jonah rising and fleeing to Tarshish would fit with the pattern, wouldn't it? It would follow what we have seen so far in the first two verses. Jonah's disobedience feels imminent, even. We're just expecting for him to follow through and disobey again the second time. But he doesn't do that, does he? No, he obeys. Verse 3, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah's rebellion in chapter 1 gives way to Jonah's repentance in chapter 3. It's literally a 180-degree turn. Now the question I think is interesting for us to consider is, why the change? What's the difference between chapter 1 and Jonah's response? And chapter 3, Jonah's obedience. What cuts through and breaks the deja vu? Well, certainly recent events would make Jonah, or really anyone, reconsider disobeying God again, right? I mean, if I had just spent few days in a hurricane and in the belly of a fish for disobeying God, it would give me pause before disobeying him again. But certainly the authority of God compels Jonah to go to Nineveh. I don't think that's the only reason. I think there's another reason, perhaps a deeper reason, that Jonah goes to Nineveh. It's that Jonah is thankful for his salvation. He has thanksgiving over God's redemption. We see this throughout his prayer in chapter 2. It just comes through throughout the whole prayer. But I think it, it really crystallizes in verse 9. Look down with me. What does Jonah say in verse 9? As he considers God redeeming him out of the belly of Sheol, he prays, But I, with the voice of what? The voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Thanksgiving over his salvation motivates Jonah's sacrifice, strengthens his resolve to pay his vows, and compels him to go to Nineveh. Jonah's rebellion in chapter 1 transforms into Jonah's repentance in chapter 3, because of Jonah's redemption of Jonah, because of God's redemption of Jonah in chapter 2. It's God's kindness, his kindness that led him to repentance. 
It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Romans 2, verse 4. Have you been spinning your wheels over the same sins? Have you been struggling to share the gospel, the message that God has given you to share? Well, if that describes you this morning, I think you have another question to ask. How much have you been considering the kindness of God recently? How much have you been been considering the kindness of God recently? Now, each each one of us will battle sin until the day we die, and I don't presume to know the ins and outs of your individual sins. Some of you may have to battle sin until the day you die, the same sins over and over and over again. But I wonder if some of you are returning to the same sins because you have not been considering the kindness of God. You're trying to move from chapter 1, rebellion, to chapter 3, repentance, without resting in your chapter 2, redemption. And when you do that, forgetting God's kindness to you in redemption, you will inevitably try to repent out of fear. I need to get rid of this anger or else. I need to figure out this doubt or what will happen to me. That type of thinking just exasperates disobedience, doesn't it? It's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. And it's God's kindness that leads others to repentance. So parents, let's think about what this means for us in our homes. Let's paint a picture for our kids of a kind God. Let's show them with detail how kind God is. How it was his idea to create Oreo McFlurries. (laughs) How pink comes from his paintbrush. How Jesus loved spending time with kids and how kids must have liked spending time with Jesus because they did that a lot. Let's tell our kids how God welcomes those who can't get their act together. How God exposes maybe only one or two sins, even though he could expose so many sins. It's God's kindness that will lead our kids to repentance. And the same goes for all of our discipling relationships. So whether you're 17 or 77, let's consider how we can encourage others with how kind God is. The question you can ask each other after the service or later this week is, how have you experienced the kindness of God in your life? Ask each other, how have you tasted and seen that God is kind? God's kindness is what led Jonah to repent, and it's what led Nineveh to repent as well. God's kindness is what led Nineveh to repent. Point number two of the sermon is Nineveh repents. 
instead of letting the Ninevites live and die in their evil way and in their violence. Without a word of warning, our God, our kind God, showed them how serious their sin was. And verse 5, they believed him. They believed God. They believed their sin was so serious that they called a citywide fast. From the greatest of them to the least of them. From the king to the king's servants. Chapter 4, verse 11 says this fast included more than 120,000 people. This is a little more than the population of West Palm Beach. Can you imagine driving up interstate, pulling off, going into West Palm Beach and seeing the whole city fasting? Restaurants empty, lips cracked due to dehydration. The Ninevites are so shaken by their sin that they even make their animals fast. Cows are going hungry. Goats are wearing sackcloth. This city is desperate. Desperate for salvation, which was a mercy of God. It was kind of God to bring them this low. Salvation was around the corner, but if the Ninevites didn't see how serious their sin was, then salvation wouldn't have made any sense. If they weren't desperate for salvation, they would have never turned in repentance. They would have just carried on, doubling down on their violence and their evil ways. Forty more days of life as normal, and then, boom. Widespread destruction. But God mercifully shows them the gravity of their situation. I've been praying God does that for some of you this morning. The seriousness of your sin. Salvation won't make any sense for you unless you know you need saving. You got to get that. Salvation won't make any sense unless you know you need saving. This was Philip Franklin's problem. Philip Franklin, who was the vice president of the company that made the Titanic. Do you remember his infamous line about this boat? He says, There is no danger that Titanic will sink. The boat is unsinkable, and nothing but inconvenience will be suffered by the passengers if we run into any icebergs. Salvation from icebergs didn't make sense to Philip Franklin because he didn't think the Titanic needed saving. He thought they were unsinkable. That's our default reaction to our sin. That we are unsinkable. Sure, we are all sinners. Everyone is. But salvation from sin? 
Well, that's just an overreaction. Sin is just a mild inconvenience. Friends, get this. Sin is so serious that eternity in hell under God's just wrath won't be able to exhaust the punishment. It won't be able to exhaust his wrath. After a billion years under God's just wrath, what Jesus calls the eternal fire, after a billion years of being in the furnace of God's fury, left in our sin, left in your sin, you won't be any closer to having the punishment stop. It will just keep going. Another billion years, not any closer. This is how serious sin is. Sin is not an inconvenience. It is not merely an inconvenience. No, you are sinkable. You are sinkable underneath God's wrath if you come to him based upon your own works. We are all, I am, you are, we are all desperately sinkable unless we repent. Unless we repent and believe that God may relent. The Ninevite king was not sure if God would relent. As far as we know, he never heard that God relenting was an option, but just the possibility of a merciful God drove him to repentance. Verse 9, he says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. God's kindness, or at least the prospect of God's kindness, drove this Ninevite king to repentance. In verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Point number three of the sermon is God relents. Considering the gravity, considering the complexity of the Ninevite sin and how it was so long-standing, I think the simple, straightforward nature of verse 10 is amazing. After centuries of disobedience, after grotesque violence, homicide, abuse, I would have expected a more thorough examination of the Ninevites' repentance. Maybe put them on probation for a while. Let's see if their repentance is really genuine or not. That's what I'd do. Not God. No, God sees the prodigal Ninevites a long way off. And like the parable of the father in Luke 15, he feels compassion and runs for them. You don't need to turn there, but let me just read to you this parable from Luke 
15, beginning in verse 11. This is Jesus speaking. He said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. <laughs> but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. We'll pick up the rest of the parable in chapter 4, but I think Tim Keller is right on the money when he goes to this parable to illustrate the story of Jonah. God doesn't wait on his porch for the Ninevites to come up, ready to scold, preparing a lecture. No, he sees them a long way off, and he runs. He sprints to them out of compassion. It just took a verse, just one sentence for Jonah to describe how quickly God relented. He comes to the Ninevites, embracing them, and he prepares these hungry, thirsty repenters a feast of his unrelenting mercy. He says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on. Here's a ring for your hand, shoes for your feet. Take that sackcloth off that calf and kill it. Let's eat and celebrate. I happily relent. I happily relent. I quickly relent. There's so much I want to say right now, but Jesus said it best. Something greater than Jonah is here. Matthew 12, 41, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. First point, behold, we don't have an imperfect prophet, Jonah, the son of Amittai, implying that God may relent if we repent. 
No, we have a perfect prophet, Jesus, the Son of God, promising that God will quickly relent if we repent. You don't need to twist God's arm for him to relent. You don't need to do emotional penance, working yourself up to this vague degree of acceptable contrition over your sin for God to turn to you in mercy. That's not the way saving faith and repentance works. There's nothing in the Bible that says you need to read a certain quota, a certain degree of grief for God to count your repentance as genuine. You won't find one verse in the Bible that says that. And what you find in the Bible is just come. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Just come. Trusting in Christ to forgive your sin and desiring to obey him, just come. And he will quickly relent. Jesus is quick to relent whether you have this much repentance or you have this much repentance. Get that. Jesus is quick to relent if you have this much repentance or this much repentance. Either way, you get the same mercy. Just start down the road. Just start down the road of faith and repentance, and you won't be able to make it to the mailbox before God embraces you with mercy. Before he takes off, before he sprints to you and says, welcome home. Let's eat and celebrate. In fact, if you are already trusting in Christ for salvation this morning, He's already prepared a table for you. He's already set the table. Take and eat. Jesus' body was overthrown on the cross so that he could raise yours up on the last day. Take and drink. Jesus' blood has already quenched the unquenchable flame meant for you. First point, remember that if you've repented, God has relented forever. Let's pray. Father, we don't deserve your mercy. Nothing in us, nothing that we've done deserves your mercy. But you've given it to us so freely. And so we thank you and we praise you. Father, I ask for my brothers and sisters here that they would recognize that they do not need to convince you. They do not need to uh, present a resume of how contrite they are for you to accept them. Give them faith to believe that all they need to do is turn to Jesus. And you will receive them. You will relent. Father, for anyone here this morning who 
is starting to, to wonder if, if maybe, maybe they could come. Father, overwhelm them with your mercy and remind them, show them, tell them for the first time that yes, they could come, you will receive them. You received an unfaithful prophet, Jonah, and you received the disobedient, evil Ninevites. You will receive them. Give them faith and repentance to do that. In your son's name, amen. Amen, Teresa.